Lord, we agree with those things and do desire that your hand work mightily amongst us. We praise you that you've done many things and many people here, in fact, all of us in many ways. And we just praise you today and desire to give you all the glory and that everything that we do today would glorify your name. As we get into your word, we desire your word come alive to us. Commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, i got to break up your file, so let's get serious here. Let's get into the book of Romans. And I appreciated Connie's prayer concerning, what did you call it? Stinking thinking. I might have to adopt that as we talk about things we think about. In fact, I'll introduce it. We're talking about the book of Romans and a major concept here, dying to sin in terms of living the Christian life. And thinking is very, very, very important. And actually, our actions ultimately stem from our thinking. And I want to stress this because this passage deals with a perspective. In other words, the key to living the Christian life is is having the right mentality, you might say, or the right mindset. So let me try to emphasize it just simply by illustrating it. One way to illustrate it is today, very prominent today. Unfortunately, I think the at least the liberal media has totally discredited itself with fake news. And why would an organization risk discrediting itself? Because they are so adamant at trying to portray or trying to give a perspective, basically. They're trying to shape minds. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to negatively paint a picture of, right now, our president. But it goes beyond that. You and I, as well, or those that are conservative anyway, they want the world to view us a certain way in order that what? They get their way. Ultimately, it'll sway votes away from the candidate that they oppose. So thinking they're... The propaganda is designed to affect the way we think in terms of certain candidates. If we have a negative impression of them, we don't trust them, etc., then we're tending to vote for the side that they support. So we have a lot of fake news, right? Some of it is fiction. Another area, this is the same thing that gossip does. And the Bible speaks against that. When we do that, oftentimes it's malicious, sometimes it's uh, destructive. It's always destructive and malicious. But the goal is to leave an impression in the minds of people concerning another person in order that you may reject them or whatever, whatever the motives are there. So it destroys reputations, but it's all in the mind. It's all thinking. It can be totally unreal can actually be the very opposite even. Another example, if you have money in the bank and your mindset is, oh, I've got plenty of money, and I don't want to pick on the women, but what do you do? You what? Go shopping. Exactly. In other words, I've got plenty of money in the bank, so we can afford it, so I can buy this thing that I want. The husband just didn't tell her that he just wrote a check to pay this mortgage and the money is not there, but she does it anyway, not because she wants the check to bounce, but because what? In her mind, what? 
In her mind, she thinks that there's money there, so she acts on that thought. See what I'm illustrating here? So we go and spend. And in the morning, you just get up, and you go halfway there, and you didn't look at the gauge there, and you didn't realize that you didn't have enough gas to get to your place. But you left thinking that you had plenty of gas, and you made it there. Now, if you're like me, I went all of 2018 without buying a single drop of gas. I filled up December 2017 and filled up again in January, one tank of gas. So I didn't have that problem. Notice where thinking is. That's a gutter mind, or what was the what was the phrase? Uh, stinking thinking. All right. I've experienced this in sports. If you have confidence, for example, in basketball, you kind of get in a zone sometimes, and on some occasions, the shots are just falling. You know, it just seems like. You can't miss. Seems like the basket is this big, when in reality it's this big. So you shoot, and it goes in, and it goes in, and it goes in. In fact, one of our Lobo women, she was in a zone like that. She made 10 freshmen, 10 three-pointers in one game. She just had the confidence. And because of the confidence in her mind, now she reacts to that and takes the shot because she feels that she can make it. And, in fact, she made 39 points in the game, set Mount West records and Lobo records, everything else as a freshman. So athletics, a lot of athletics is not just physical, but a lot of it is actually in your thinking, in your mind. And if you don't have confidence, then it hinders your performance as well. So thinking is very important. This is the essence of what Paul is going to deal with in this passage. In fact, what does he say in verse 3? Do you not know? In other words, you should know these things. And if you don't know these things, then he's going to elaborate. And this is the heart of what it is here that he's dealing with in Romans chapter 6. And what he wants us to know are some key concepts relating to who we are as new creatures in Christ. And that's the heart of what he's talking about. And if we have the mindset and know who we are in Christ, this is the key. This is the key, not only this passage, but this is the key to living the Christian life. Particularly at hard times, particularly in facing temptation, particularly when issues arise in your life, how you think, in other words, how you view that situation from the perspective of who you are is going to determine whether you fall for the temptation or whether you're able to rethink what God has supplied in order to enable you to deal with whatever situation. So that's the heart of it, and that's the reason I start with it, is just to kind of emphasize it, and we're going to see this over and over and over. And he, he began in verse 1, chapter 1, But what he's laying out here, he's laying out his theology 
And it's practical. All theology, by the way, is practical. We sometimes just miss it. But the practical idea of basically how do we live, and that's the focus of chapter 6 through 8. So if you have the mindset and you keep that before you, who you are as a new creature in Christ, now you have to be a believer first, otherwise that's not true. And the unbeliever has to realize that he is separate from Christ. And none of these things apply to him. In other words, he does not have access to the power that Paul is going to lay out here. So this is for those that know Christ and are new creatures in him. Second Corinthians, what, 5, 17. Okay? So we're looking at the provision that God has made, and he has worked his way through chapter 1 through, we haven't got to chapter 8 yet, But he's trying to convince us in our thinking, or at least the believer, to understand the concept relating to a particular doctrine. Theologians call that soteriology, or the doctrine of salvation. He wants them to realize that mankind is condemned before a holy God. The unbeliever goes along in life suppressing that idea, not thinking about it, ignoring it, leaving God out in every decision, doing normal, what we would call normal, even though it's abnormal from God's perspective, normal things every day, and they function through life, never considering their relationship to God and realizing that they're condemned. Because their thinking is, I'm okay. I was raised in the church, I was baptized as an infant, and I went to church a little bit, Probably enough to satisfy God. Da, 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 da. Add to the list. Paul starts off. He's dealing in the book of Romans. It's mostly theological because we have to have the right perspective to understand what reality is all about. God gives us reality. Even though in our thinking we might suppress it, like 118, the tendency is to suppress the truth in ungodliness. We suppress it, but reality is there regardless. Right? There are certain laws of uh, nature, as an example, and some of them you ignore, and what happens? You jump off a 10-story building and say, well, I'm just going to ignore the law of gravity today, see if I can get away with it. In some cases, you don't. Spiritually, the same is true. You cannot escape the principles that God has laid out. The Bible gives us reality no matter what fiction we may have in our thinking. So he's convincing us of condemnation. We've spent some time looking at the solution. Paul calls that justification. The two elements of justification, remind everybody. First one, the negative. Where's Linda? She likes to remind us of that. The negative is justification, by definition, is God what? Removing something. Impute righteousness. That's the positive. Forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness, cleansing. The second one is declaring us righteous. Declaration of righteousness. It's judicial. It is, theologians call it forensic. It is positional. It is real. In other words, that is reality. That is truth. We don't feel it all the time. We don't sense it all the time, but it's real. And now... The next stage that we're in, sanctification, is a process of growing to be more and more righteous. And we call that, Paul uses the word 
sanctification. So we're in chapter 6 through 8. And just to remind you, verse 1, to get into the context here, what shall we say then? This is after he's completed the whole section on justification. What shall we say then? And he raises the issue. Now, how do we live now that we have received this justification? And he's directing this at those that have received it. In chapter 5, he's transitioning. Having been justified, then all of these other things are true as well. He's setting a framework in our thinking, giving us the biblical perspective of reality. And now he's asking the question, what shall we say then? And that introduces us. And since most of you kind of like these little charts, I'm going to give you a chart that outlines the whole paragraph from verse 1. And we'll go back to it and refer to it as we move through it. So we've looked at justification and he's asking the question, "Okay, what now? If we've been justified, what comes next? And he describes this in chapter 6 with the word sanctification, or at least that's the translation. We spent a whole Sunday talking about that concept, and I gave you the words, and we looked at uh, how the words related to it all have the same idea. Sanctification is what? What did we conclude? Being set apart. Very good. And what's the last part of that? Being set apart for a purpose, or to be useful. Very good. That's the process. Sanctification is the process of God working in us to already have have set us apart, but to make us more and more useful. And in this portion, chapter 6, he's going to lay out the principles primarily. Now, the principles are going to run all the way through chapter 8, but he lays out the essential ones Then he elaborates on them dealing with other parts of it. In chapter 7, he's going to deal with the particular problems because we have a tendency, our hearts tend in a certain direction, so he has to deal with the issue of our self-effort or coming up with a list of do's and don'ts. That's not biblical. In other words, now I need to just obey all the commands. Well, that's going to introduce some problems. He's going to deal with that in chapter 7. In chapter 8, he's going to lay out an alternative, which is the power that's available to be able to live the Christian life. And as we work through, we'll get through that. So he raises the issue in the first two verses, 6, 1 through 2. And the issue, are we to continue in sin? In other words, he's convinced us when we are unbelievers, even though we think the things we do are maybe right, Some of them may be relatively right, but in relationship to God, none of those good things that we think in our mind are good measure up to his perfect standards. And therefore, we're condemned. Should we continue in that way of living, in that way of thinking? Because in chapter 5, he said God has adequate grace to cover no matter how bad, how how evil a person is, his grace is abounds and it's greater than any sin and God is glorified when he pours that grace out so if that's true well then why don't I just sin all the more so that God's grace will be more evident and God will get more glory so that's the issue that he's raising shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase and we looked at that little phrase continuing in sin let me just remind you last time I kind of developed the idea The word continue, epimeno, 
to remain. It's used in a literal sense. In fact, it's used like in the book of Acts, where it talks about Paul staying in a certain location. Same word. Same word can be used. So to stay in the same place, they stayed a certain length of time. So it's used in that everyday sense. It's also used in a more, you might say, non-literal way to remain in a particular condition or a particular state. I'm not talking about New Mexico or Arizona or whatever, but a particular state of, in terms of a condition or a framework or a mindset. Should we continue in sin in this attitude of the unbeliever or in this place, this realm of the unbeliever? And by the way, if you break the word up, you take the little, the first part of it, epi, most of you or some of you that have a little Greek understanding, that's a preposition that, that precedes a another word, meno. That's the word that Jesus uses and the New Testament uses in terms of abiding, abiding in Christ, to abide in Christ. Remember all those verses? We're encouraged to abide in him. If we abide in him, we have his power flowing through us. If we do not abide, in other words, remaining within that sphere or within that realm, within Christ Jesus, the Bible has a lot to say about it. This passage has similar things to say. And oftentimes when you put a preposition before a verb like that, it intensifies it. I'm not sure that's the case here, but it's the same idea, to persist to remain with or in a certain realm, literally to, to stay in a particular city. All of you abide, or all of you, you could use the word epimeno in Albuquerque. That makes sense? So we remain in a place, or so the idea, should we continue in that place that he is condemned in the first three chapters, in order that God may be greater glorified? The sin, it's that common word that we've looked at, and I gave you some details on that, uh, hamartia, and I made the point that it occurs here, and from chapter 5, verse 20, all the way through chapter 8, which is a little bit different, the way the word occurs in other places, but in this particular passage, it occurs with the article. Now, you might think, well, this is grammar, and, you know, what's so important about it? Well, I think the article is pointing to the idea that he's talking about the sin, and it's singular, not sins, in other words, the multitude of things that we do that are displeasing to God, but he's talking about the sin. Remember, we talked about this already when we were in chapter 5. The sin in chapter 5 refers to what? Say that again. Sin nature. Well, yeah, the sin nature, but... It's referring to where it came from in chapter 5 through Adam. And he's talking about the sin of Adam in chapter 5. And now he's talking about the sin that we have acquired from Adam and the realm in which we find ourselves. And in that realm, we find ourselves condemned. So it's the sin, even though it's not translated with the article. In the singular, it occurs 25 times in that portion from 520 to 8.3. So it's significant. So he's talking about more this general concept that we find ourselves in as unbelievers, as within, from God's perspective, the realm of sin that he has condemned and has ultimate eternal consequences. All right? 
Well, the te is the article, and hamartia is the word. The sin. Yeah. Yeah, so you could translate it, the sin, and it's in the singular, as I mentioned, and with the article 25 times in that passage. So the sin probably is alluding to, it definitely has relationship to the sin of Adam, but in this context, when he's talking about who we are, He's probably, in a general way, referring to our sinful natures as we were as unbelievers. Now, when we become a believer, remember, that doesn't go away. We have that nature, but the imputation of righteousness means that now we have what? The ability to live differently, and if we want to condense her words there, we have a new nature. And only the believer has a new nature. The unbeliever does not. So it's referring to that past, and God has dealt with that in the past, but we still have that nature. We still have the capacity to do everything and more than what we did as unbelievers. And the answer he gives in verse 2, and in verse 2 he's beginning to kind of lay out this idea that we're going to develop in more detail. May it never be, and we stress that, you know, I summarized it, are you crazy? (laughs) What's wrong with you? In other words, absolutely not is the idea here. The strongest way that you can negate something in the Greek language. And then he gives the key to it. Basically, uh, how shall we, who died to the sin. Here's another occurrence of hamartia with the article. We died to that sin that he'd already described. How shall we, who did, who died to that sin still live in it. In other words, it is totally inconsistent with who we are. It's totally contrary to what God has done, even though that's our inclination, even though that is who we were, and we tend to stay in who we were before Christ made a change in our hearts. It is totally contrary to who we are. And now he's going to set our thinking in order so that now that will have an effect and an impact in our acting or our living. Got it? See where we're headed here? So let me give you what typically, in fact, let me ask you the question. If somebody asked you that question that Paul lays out, what answer would you give? Why should we not continue in sin? Give me some suggestions. You will die. You will die. Okay. <laughs> In that broad sense that we'll yeah. develop. Yeah. One of the ones that's me the most is I really love with all my heart. Why would I want to keep sin and break his heart? Like, it makes no sense to me to do something. Right. It, it would be like do, treating my parents in a really awful way and yet loving them. It's like that, the two don't. Inconsistent. You know, it's inconsistent. Yeah. It's not how I would treat my parents or how my Lord or whatever. It's Right. It's contrary to anything that makes rational sense. From God's perspective, right. Well, from my own, too. Yeah, okay. Why would I want to treat the Lord that I love, who died for my sin, why would I want to sin more, even though it's forgiven? Exactly. And and you gave a real good illustration of the parent-daughter relationship. Okay. What are some common answers that people would give? Why it's not good to continue in sin? I've got a list of them here, just kind of... Set the stage. Pardon me? Well, he mentioned that one. But continue, well, if you're a believer, you're not going because it's settled. 
So as a believer now, it damages the relationship. Damages the relationship. Very good. Give me another one. I didn't hear the last one there. It. What's the first word? Grieves. Grieves the spirit. Very good. Now all these things are true. Now common things. It is wrong. Okay, basically it's wrong. All of these are true, by the way. And what I'm getting at is something that you'll see at the end here. God will not bless me. Is that what you said, Terry? Or some no, damages? It's wrong. It's wrong. Okay. Uh, damages our relationship. God will not bless me. It does damage. It's a common answer. Now, these are true. These are all true. God will discipline. Somebody, I think, said that one. Fifthly, it will damage my conscience. I'll feel guilty. And that'll lead to other things as well. Number six, it undermines our testimony to unbelievers, to people that don't know Christ. Our words will be hollow, will be viewed as hypocrites. All these are true. Seven, it forfeits future rewards. That's true as well. The question is, what does Paul say? What's Paul's answer? None of these are in Paul's answer. They're all true, but he's dealing at a very deeper level. He's dealing at the very heart of the issue. Bill, were you going to make a comment there? It also diminishes the effectiveness of prayer. Of what? Prayer. Prayer, okay. Yeah, damages prayer and every everything else in the Christian life. Interesting, Paul basically says that it contradicts our identity in Christ. That's the heart of Romans 6. He doesn't list any of the others. Now, you can find biblical passages that indicate all of the above, but Paul is going deeper to the very heart issues. That's the essence of what we have in chapter 6. It contradicts who we are in Christ. Make sense? So he says, how shall we who died to, and I kind of put in parentheses, the sin, in other words, this broad concept of sin that comes from Adam that we have inherited, that has changed who we are as human beings before God, dealing with our nature as sinful creatures, how shall we who died to the sin still live in it? And now the rest of the passage He's going to expand that, basically. So let me outline the whole paragraph with another chart here. So he's introducing this concept of death to sin. That starts in verse 2. This is the answer to the question. Now, it's not immediately evident until he kind of elaborates on it. So he's going to follow in verse 3. Here is the heart and the essence of the principle It deals with our uniting with Christ. And he's going to use a particular word. We won't have time to look at it. Next week, I'll give you a little bit more background on a word that he uses in verse 3. But let me summarize the whole passage here. So we're united with Christ. In other words, do you not know? He's reminding them of what happened to them when they trusted in Jesus Christ. We were joined to Christ. He uses the word baptized. So we'll have to define that because in our thinking we're all confused. In fact, a commentator says we've arrived at chapter 6 and I hope that uh, we can get through it without getting wet. Because our mind, when we see that word, we think of getting wet. So now, after verse 3, 
He says, therefore, he's going to add to it, because if this is true, then there's other things that are true. Greek word, un, for Otios and those Greek students. If we are united to Christ, we are also united to his resurrection. This is the significance now. He's going to expand, beginning in verse 4, the significance of that union when we trusted in Christ, that joining to Christ. What's the significance of it? Is that we are also joined to his resurrection. And the Bible has a lot to say about the resurrection of Christ. In some books, entire chapters devoted to that. I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 15. That's very significant in living the Christian life. Because now, uniting us to his resurrection, that gives us access to resurrection power. We'll see that. Okay? Not today. So 5 through 10, if this is true, for if all of this is true, then we not only have died with Christ, it's the same as if we were on the cross. We were co-crucified. And that's reality. In other words, it's not just theory. It's not just imagination. That is reality. That's why he's wanting to shape our thinking. This is true. And why is it true? Not because we had some feeling. Not because we had some experience. Because of why? Because God stated it. Because God has said it. God has emphasized it in the book of Romans and and elsewhere. And if we have also, if we have been co-crucified, then we have also been what? Co-resurrected. So he's going to repeat that same idea in terms of our access to Christ's resurrection power. And that's the key. And if we can keep that in our thinking, then that's going to enable us to be able to overcome sin. It's going to enable us to not only overcome sin, to be useful. And it's going to promote the process of sanctification, making us more useful. So this is the explanation that he's going to offer. And it's not till verse 11. What he's doing is he's laying out the facts. He's laying out reality. And it's not till verse 11 that he gives us the application or how do we respond now? We don't respond by making a list of do's and don'ts. Oh, okay, I can't do this anymore. Got to stop doing this. Now I got to start doing all of these things and I come up with a list. What does he tell us? He's telling us basically in verse 11, reckon. In other words, draw from that account of who you are in Christ. In other words, it's basically asking us to trust reality. Trust what he said. Even when our feelings go in the opposite direction. Even when our distorted thinking makes us come to the wrong conclusions. This is why it's so important to continually lay a biblical foundation in our thinking because that thinking is going to give us the basis to be able to act on what reality and what truth is. Everybody following here? See the importance of what we're doing? That's the whole paragraph. The first paragraph in chapter 6. The concept or the principle, death to sin, death to that old way of living, it's real. That's reality. We may not feel that way, especially in the midst of intense temptation. And that also is related to being united in Christ. 
our relationship to him, that union of Christ, that leads to the significance of the resurrection. We're also united in his resurrection, and he reiterates it and explains it further, 5 through 10, and then he calls upon us to trust it, basically, or believe it. That's why sanctification is by faith. We've been emphasizing that. So, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase, may it never be? How shall we, who died to the sin, still continue in it or still live in it? So there should be progressive growth after we have become born again or become true believers. So it's inconsistent with who we are to continue, contrary to our new nature. That's the answer that Paul gives. That's the heart of everything he's saying in Romans chapter 6. That's why I'm spending so much time to kind of emphasize it and reiterate it and give it to you in different ways here. If you can catch that, that, if you want to have a key to the Christian life, that's it. At least that's Paul's answer. That's the inspired answer. Now, at this point, let me, let's get into this concept of death. We looked at the concept of sin, and sin produces death. Going back to Adam. Now, we've already looked at this, so this is a review. I'm going to go through it a little bit quicker. In this passage particularly, and there's others in the New Testament, but particularly chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, when Paul is using, and there's a series of words, there are two major words here, word groups. I'm going to lay them out for you, the terms... When he's talking about death in general, now you have to look carefully at the context and we'll do that as we work our way through, but let me introduce this concept of death. Well, I've introduced it, but let me remind you of what we've talked about. And let's first look at the terms and then we'll go back and some of this will be familiar to some of you that have been here. When he's talking about death, he's not talking about ceasing to breathe or heart stopping. He's using it in a more non-literal or it's a real, in other words, it's not unreal, but it's a real experience that he's talking about here, this death idea, but he's not using it in the idea of the heart stopping. The words that he uses, and it occurs, we won't look at them, but if you want to jot them down, it occurs in chapter 6, verse 2. We just looked at that. This is the verbal idea to die, basically, the idea of dying. And he's not talking about stopping your breathing or stopping of your heart. He also uses it, at least in this immediate context, in all of the verses, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Same word occurs. Apothnesko is the Greek word. Now, immediately, it doesn't look like it, but it is related. This is the verb. It's related to the noun form. The noun form is thanatos. You see the theta in both of them, and you see the noon or the N, the TH sound, that's the theta here, the first letter here. It's up there as well, then you have the noon or the N sound. These two are related. One is the verb, one is the noun. Now, I mean, that's not as important, but just the point I'm making is both of them have the same idea. One, the verb idea, to die. And in some contexts, like I'm saying, it has the literal meaning of to cease to breathe and your heart stopping, etc., and turning cold and everything else. But oftentimes, and particularly in this passage, it has a different significance in terms of 
literalness, non-literal. So the noun means death. Same idea. And you can see thanatos in verse 3, 4, and 5, and elsewhere as well. There's another one. This is a different word group, nekros. This is real common as well. In fact, aposnesko, I think, occurs like 111 times or something like that. The noun, 117 times. So it's very common. Nekros, just as common, maybe even more common. It also has the idea of something that is that is dead. And uh, a lot of the verses, including this one in verse 4 and in verse 9, it's related to uh, coming back from the dead or resurrection. And in those two verses, it refers to Christ resurrected from the dead. It's nekros. Different word. They're synonyms. In other words, they have similar usages, similar ideas. And in this context, this word as well is... Well, when it refers to the resurrection of Christ, it's referring to him literally being taken from the literal state of deadness. But in other contexts, it also has that non-literal sense. So those are the terms. I'm going to just group it into three major categories of how death is used. Obviously, it's used in that physical sense of the body being separated from the non-material part or the spiritual part of who we are. And the unbeliever, is he alive or is he dead? Paul says he's dead in his trespasses and his sins. Is the unbeliever breathing and is his heart pumping? Okay, so he's not using it in this sense in Ephesians 2.1. But in some contexts, in fact, very commonly in the Gospels, refers to people that have died in a literal sense. So that's one way. In fact, there's a lot of usages in that way referring to lots of people who died. In fact, all of us eventually cease breathing and our heart stops, okay? So it's used very commonly in this way. There are a few passages that refer to a second death where that word is used. This is eternal separation from God, forever and ever and ever. That's hell. The second death is another way of talking about hell. And that's where the unbeliever ends up ultimately and forever. All right, so that's a non-physical experience. It's a an eternal spiritual separation forever. Now, there's a whole group of verses that deal with this third, and I'm calling it, and I haven't seen this anywhere, so you might check it out, but I'm calling it a comprehensive spiritual death that has lots of dimensions to it, lots of dimensions. And some of these passages are going to remind you of this because when he's talking about sin causing death, he's talking about the Christian that is breathing, his heart is pumping, but he's experiencing death. He's using it in this more comprehensive spiritual sense, not in that physical sense of separation of the body from the spirit and the soul and all that thing. A comprehensive spiritual death which involves the whole person. Now, we saw when we were talking about our condemnation, our minds are affected, our emotions are affected, our all every aspect of who we are is affected, and in that comprehensive sense, the unbeliever is dead. He's not alive to spiritual realities, spiritual things. Now, I took you back to Genesis, so this is kind of a reminder When it talks about the death, 
It's also referring to the death of Adam. Remember I stressed that when we were in chapter 5. It also has the article, and it, I think, is identifying the death of Adam in a comprehensive sense. And in Genesis, if you study Genesis chapter 3, you'll find out that Adam died spiritually. In chapter 2, God said, in the day, in other words, he's specifying a time frame, in the day that you eat from the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, what's going to happen? Say it again. You will die, and Jeremy likes to say what? Die dead. Die dead. He uses the infinitive absolute there. In other words, he uses a noun and a infinitive to convey the idea that it is a definite, certain experience. And you could literally translate it, in the day that you eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden, you shall die dead. In other words, that's it. A real experience. So it involves the spirit. And that's illustrated in 7 through 9. Remember, they are hiding from God. God takes the initiative to bring them back into relationship. That's all of chapter 3 now. But there's a brokenness. They are separated from God. That's spiritual death. That's the condition of the unbeliever. At this point, Adam and Eve are unbelievers. Their natures have been changed. Not for the positive, but for the negative. They didn't gain wisdom. They gained something, but not wisdom. Degenerate heart. It affects the intellect. You can see that in verse 7. Their thinking is all screwed up. How can you hide from an omnipresent God? How do you do that? That's what they're doing. Because their thinking is all wrong. You see that? Their intellect. Paul says that the the mind of the unbeliever is what? What word does he use in Ephesians 4? 18. Darkened. Darkened. And it's on the screen. So all of our intellect, all of our thinking, our mind is in a condition of deadness. Because it leaves God out in our thinking. That's deadness. Leaving God out in your thinking. It affects the moral aspect of who we are. So it affects our soul. It, it affects our heart. And that's illustrated in the same passage, verse 7. They, for the first time, experience shame. That's an aspect of this broader idea of deadness. Make sense? That's the death that Adam and Eve experienced that was passed on to every descendant of Adam and Eve passed on to us today. There are emotional aspects in verse 10. Why should they have these kinds of emotions? Well, there's a good reason because they stand guilty before a holy God. That should strike terror in their hearts. And they have fear. They died emotionally. So they died spiritually, they died intellectually, they died morally, they died emotionally. And some passages stress some of these aspects, and we're going to see that when we look at some of the passages in chapter 6. They died socially when God confronts Adam with his sin, trying to bring about repentance. How does Adam respond? Oh, the woman. It's her fault. What's our tendency? You know, my wife. And ultimately, not only does he blame Eve, but what else? The wife that you gave me, God. Had you not given this wonderful woman to... Well, I'm not viewing her as wonderful right now. If you had not given me this person, you know, I, I wouldn't have sinned, God. It's her fault. 
And ultimately, it's your fault. So socially, that couple is broken now. That's deadness in this comprehensive, broad sense. Just to kind of wake you up because we're about done here. Does that go on in your house? You wives kind of <laughs> pick up all your clothes. At this stage, they have their own clothes that they have made. That's man-made religion to try to cover up their sin. doesn't work. Right? Again, their thinking, their theology is darkened. And then eventually, their hearts will stop ticking, and they will no longer take in oxygen, and all their cells begin to die and decay. But in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, or you shall die dead. Did they die on the day that they partook? No. Wrong answer. They did, but they did not stop breathing. Their cells started to die. They started to grow old. They started to get gray hair. They started to develop wrinkles. They started the decay process. So on the day that they ate, they died physically. And then 930 years later, they stopped breathing, or at least Adam did. And his heart started ticking. We don't have a date for Eve. That's death. That's that comprehensive, broad sense that he's going to talk about here. That's the death. The sin refers to that sin of, and Adam is given the responsibility there, the sin of Adam in Romans chapter 5, we saw that. And what followed is the death that Adam introduced in this broad, comprehensive sense. That is what God has broken the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ. He's broken that bondage to sin and death. We are new people, and now as a result of that, we can live differently. We have another option, and it's a matter of the will to choose to live in Christ, to live in the Spirit, to live in the power that he has provided for us as opposed to continuing in our old nature, our old way of life. Make sense? So let's conclude here. We've looked at sanctification, key term, set apart for a particular purpose, set apart to God for a particular purpose. Death, I think he's using it here in this comprehensive, inclusive way that includes our minds, it includes... Our spirits, it includes our heart, it includes our emotions, it includes even our will, the decisions that we make. And the unbeliever leaves God out in the decisions. That's the way he's using death in this passage. And we're going to see it over and over, and I'll remind you, and I'll just probably refer to this comprehensive sense. So we have some principles. Grace is available. I stressed that a little bit last week. Death to sin is now a new reality. This is what we need to know and cement in our thinking. I am a new person in Christ. The moment I trusted in him. And the key, we'll get into the details of chapter 6, verse 3 through 4. This uniting with Christ. That's at the heart as well. And he starts off with, do you not know? But that's a good place to stop. In other words... We need to set our thinking right before we can respond rightly. And then now I can deal with the law. Now I can deal with temptation. Now I can deal with all these other things 
in terms of the Christian walk. Closing thought here. Becoming a new creature in Christ makes sanctification possible. Without it, it's impossible. Just like you cannot become a believer by your own efforts, so also you cannot be sanctified by your own efforts as well. Who wants to close for us? Terry, go ahead. Father, thank you for this passage. We just, Lord, we just give you hearts and minds, Lord. Help us to trust you. Help us to um, hold on to what you've already done for us. Who we are. Help us to live that out and um, grow. Amen. See you next week.